Catherine Kirk is going to come and read to us from verse 13 to verse 30, and then Neil is going to come and preach to us on that chapter. So it's Matthew chapter 19, and starting at verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Then he had placed his hands on them. He went on from there. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? he inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honour your father and mother, and love your neighbour as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers or sisters, or father or mother, or wife or children, or fields, for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Thanks very much, Catherine. Good morning, everybody. It's good to to see you all. I know some of you in recent weeks have been saying goodbye to your... um, Sons and daughters, as they've left home and gone off to uni or returned to, to university, and I'm sure it would have been an emotional occasion. Well, back in 1853, on the 19th of September, another mother came to say goodbye to her son, her 21-year-old son. He was at the docks in Liverpool. Uh, he wasn't going off to university. He was going uh, to leave England to serve as a missionary in China. Uh, His name was Hudson, Hudson Taylor. Uh, The boat journey itself was going to take five months, and neither the mother nor the son would be sure that they would ever see each other again. 
And so as the small ship began to leave uh, the dock, the distraught mother sat down and uh, started to shake all over. Apparently Hudson leapt ashore, put his arm round her and uh, tried to console her. And he said, dear mother, don't cry. We shall meet again. Think of the glorious object I have in leaving you. It's not for wealth or fame, but to try to bring the Chinese to the knowledge of Jesus. Both mother and son were making a big sacrifice for the sake of Jesus Christ, that others may come to know him too. Three and a half thousand years earlier, uh, the book of Hebrews tells us the story of Moses, who himself made a sacrifice of a, uh, a nice place uh, to live, a nice wealthy uh, situation. Um, this is what it says in the book of Hebrews. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, if you are a Christian here this morning, you will have made a sacrifice. You have weighed up the cost of following Jesus and decided, actually, there's nothing that the world can offer that can get anywhere near the reward of knowing Jesus Christ as your saviour. As the Apostle Paul said, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Jesus calls us to give up everything for him because he has already given up everything for us. And the more we grow as a Christian, the more we are willing to sacrifice, the more we will realize that we will never be able to give up more for Christ than we receive from him. Well, in this current sermon series, we're looking at kingdom values. And uh, Jesus' teaching on these values in the last uh, three weeks has been prompted by a question. If you've got your Bibles open, uh, flick back to chapter 18, verse 1. And there we're told the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus began to teach them about humility, a kingdom value. Then flick on to verse 21, the following week, Peter came to Jesus and he asked him, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? And Jesus was able to teach him about forgiveness. And last week in verse 3 of chapter 19, it was the Pharisees who who came to him to test him. Uh, They asked this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus' response taught them about faithfulness. Well, this morning there's another question that comes, and it's in verse 17. We just heard it read for us. A man or someone who's described in Mark and Luke's Gospels as a rich young ruler, comes up to Jesus and asks him this question. Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Well, before we come on to that conversation, there's another little incident in verses 13 to 15 that is meant to stand in strong contrast to the attitude of this rich young man. And here we see not people who are able to come to Jesus themselves, 
but little children who are brought to Jesus. And Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. What does he mean by that? Well, what he means, as we saw a few weeks ago in a similar incident, is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who recognize they have nothing to offer. Although children are not innocent, um, we know that if we've had children ourselves, they're, they're born sinful like we all are, they have certain characteristics that Jesus is looking for in all people. They have a simple trust. They, they are dependent. At their young age, they are aware their, their knowledge is limited, and they haven't achieved much yet in their lives. So in short, they come to the table with nothing to offer. How does that contrast with the rich young ruler? Well, his question is, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, his mistake, like the Pharisees last week, is assumption that um, becoming part of the kingdom of heaven is about doing something to earn one's place. It's somehow about complying with various rules and regulations that have been given. And implicit in that question is the self-belief that he is able to do whatever is asked of him. He feels already doing a lot, but um, just wants to make sure it's enough. But as we looked at last week, law-keeping is not the way to God. It's not how we enter God's kingdom. The law is for those who are already right with God to know how to live. After all, the Ten Commandments were given to Israel after they were rescued from Egypt. They didn't have to to keep them in order to deserve to be rescued. So when Jesus replied to the man, he already hints at where his question is mistaken. He says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And what he's saying here is that there is only one person who can do all things perfectly. He's also pointing to the fact that the kingdom is about a person. It's not about a series of good deeds. There is only one person who is good. He's asking, what is he doing with his relationship with that person, with God? There's a lot that Jesus needs to teach him. And so rather than going straight there, he starts where the man is at. And so he says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Now that's what the man thinks he's doing already. Um, so that won't be a great uh, burden to him, not a big deal. Uh, so he says, which ones? Ready to show that he's actually doing just that. Look at, look at the ones though that Jesus chooses to mention. Jesus replied, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. He chooses the ones to do with loving others and adds the command that sums them all up, which is love your neighbor as yourself. He's emphasizing that the kingdom is about loving others. It's about sacrificing what you have for their sake. It's not about loving yourself and your own achievements. Well, then we see the brashness of the the man's reply. He says, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? 
It's like, yeah, I know all that. You know, tell me something new. Tell me something I don't know. Now, of course, you wouldn't expect a child to reply that way because they would know that they couldn't keep all those commandments. They would know they have nothing to offer Jesus by way of achievement. And that's precisely the point. The kingdom of heaven belongs to those who acknowledge they have nothing to offer, but who are grateful that they don't need to because Jesus has actually done it all for them. They're trusting in him and in his sacrifice. Well, as the conversation moves on, Jesus starts to point out something to the rich young man, which is that the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are willing to surrender all for God. And I notice so far, Jesus hasn't mentioned the first four commandments. All those first four commandments are all about our relationship with God. First of those is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, if Jesus had said to him, well, you also need to keep the first four commandments as well. The man would probably have said, yeah, I've kept all them as well since I was a child. But Jesus takes a different tack here. He says, if you want to be perfect or complete, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Well, suddenly the rich young ruler has his confidence knocked out of him. And we're told that when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now, you might be thinking, well, what just happened there? You know, it was all going so well. Um, Who said you had to sell everything you have to become a follower of Jesus? If we had to do that, there'll be nobody here left in this room. But Jesus can see into the man's heart and he's identified the real thing that he's worshipping, which is his wealth. Now, he may say that he has no other gods before God, um, but he is worshipping another god. He's worshipping the god of money. And Jesus was telling him to sell everything, not so much because the poor needed his money, but because his money had become a stumbling block for him to enter the kingdom. And the sad thing in this story is that the man kept his possessions, but he gave up his life. As it says in the Bible, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Now, by way of contrast, back in chapter 13 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells the parable of a man who said uh, he, he who sold everything he had to get what he saw as the most valuable thing that life has to offer, a relationship with God. The man in this story goes away sad. The man in that parable goes away overjoyed. To say we worship no other God is to say that there is nothing I have that I cannot live without. The man couldn't live without his money. Last Saturday morning at the the women's breakfast, we considered the whole issue of suffering. Um, we looked at the story of Job in the Bible, who um, had everything. You know, he had wealth, he had family, um, he had health, good health. But everything was taken away from him. And yet, he was still able to say these amazing words, Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked, I shall depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. 
Would we honestly be able to say that? Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to, to sell everything and give it to the poor. It means in your heart you have to let go of it. Is your wealth where you find your security? Is it where you find your, your meaning, your, your enjoyment? The Apostle Paul said, I, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Now, of course, money isn't the only God we worship. Um, money, money is one of them. Uh, but maybe it's your, maybe it's your job. Um, if you're working in a, um, in a high-powered job where you, you manage a large team, people respect you um, because of all your experience, your expertise. Um, would you just give all that up and go and work maybe for a, a charity for nothing where you have no experience, no respect? I'm not saying that's what you have to do to follow Jesus, but it's about where our heart is. That's often why people find retirement so hard, isn't it? That uh, um, maybe worship the respect that goes with the job. They've gone from being a somebody to being a nobody. What about your health? Um, Maybe you spend loads of money on private medical insurance because you're afraid that something might happen and the, the NHS won't be able to look after your situation quickly enough. Or maybe there's the slightest change in your health and you're, you're online Googling the symptoms to check that it's not too serious. Are we anxious the whole time about our health? Many people here do have health worries. But has that taken over our life? Maybe you worship sport and recreation. Um, you couldn't bear the prospect of having to give that up, of never being active. What if you had to live the rest of your life in a wheelchair? Maybe it's your children and their education that you, you worship. Uh, maybe the, me- the reason you moved to this area was because of the good schools, uh, the grammar schools, the good comprehensives in this, this area. Of course, we want the best for our children, don't we? But what if God was calling you to go and live somewhere where there wasn't a decent school? Would that stop you going? Or what about your home or your car? How much time do you think spend thinking about them or how you can replace them or improve them? Oh, I confess, when I was in my 20s, my idols were um, many of these things. My, my career in banking, my relationship, my friends, a good place to live. And God took away all those things. To make it clear to me, the one thing I really needed was a relationship with him. And once... Uh, that had been sorted out, then actually he gave me far more than I ever had before because I no longer worshipped them. I held on to them lightly. Now, we all have areas in our lives where we may be tempted to worship something or someone more than God. In this passage, Jesus focuses on the man's wealth because that is one of the most common idols. But of course, there are plenty more. But coming back to the passage, what happens after the man leaves? Well, Jesus says this to his disciples at the bottom there. He says, truly, I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the fact that Jesus lived as a human being means he knows our areas of weakness. 
He knows how much of a trap wealth can be. He's sympathetic. And he uses this image of a, of a camel and an eye of a needle to show that it's impossible to break free when we are slaves to money. It's impossible to break free ourselves. And that's why we're told when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. They asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Which brings us on to this next point. God has made all things possible through the sacrifice of his son. The question the disciples asked, who then can be saved, is different, isn't it, from the question that the rich young man asked. He asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Notice the difference in emphasis. One is about doing something. The other one is about having something done for us, being saved, receiving life. A group of us attended a, a first aid training course the other day. Um, just in case anything happens to you uh, this morning, I can rush and run up to you and say, don't worry, I'm, my name's Neil, I'm a first aider. <laughs> I think you might want to go to David actually instead. But um... Now we were taught to check some basic things, whether somebody was still breathing, um, if they were, to put them in the recovery position. If they weren't, to do CPR uh, or mouth-to-mouth to breathe oxygen, to breathe life into somebody who might be dying. And as the instructor said, maybe one day you'll save somebody's life. But when Jesus talks about saving someone's life, he's talking about something different. He's not talking about helping someone live longer in this life. He's talking about what happens when we die, because one day we will all die. And when that happens, if we've trusted in ourselves and what we have done, we will face eternity in a place called hell. If, on the other hand, if we've accepted we we need to be saved, if we've trusted in Jesus and received his gift, we will enjoy eternal life. And eternal life is not just talking about the length of our life, that it will be unending. It's talking about a quality of life. It will provide eternal satisfaction because we will enjoy a relationship with the God who made us. We will enjoy his love forever. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So how can we enjoy eternal life? How can we be saved? But Jesus' answer is both negative and positive. With man, he says, this is impossible. Whatever we do, it will never be enough to make ourselves acceptable in God's sight. Even if the man had sold all his possessions, that wouldn't have been enough if he was just doing it to satisfy another rule. Because what Jesus was getting at was that he needed to have a change in his heart. He had to get to the point where he said, I'm sorry for not acknowledging you as the God of the universe. For all the things I've done that have displeased you. Please forgive me for all my failings, all my weaknesses, all my mistakes. I know I cannot make myself acceptable to you, but I believe that Jesus gave up his life that I might be forgiven. And from now on, 
I want to put him first in my life. In short, he had to accept that, as Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. But how is it possible for God to do that for us? Well, it comes back to the verse that Wellesley read right at the beginning of our service from Ephesians 5. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Christ gave himself up for us means that he took the punishment that we deserved. He stood in our place so we can be forgiven and made right with God. That was the only way it was possible for us to receive eternal life. God made it possible. And that means it is possible for each one of you here this morning, if you've yet to receive the gift of eternal life, why not do just that, receive the gift? What is stopping you? But what about Peter's question in verse 27 as we finish? Because he said, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Now you wonder what sort of response he's going to get from Jesus, don't you, at this point? Is he going to rebuke him, sort of put him down? Um, But actually he doesn't, he encourages him. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. When Jesus called the twelve apostles uh, to follow him, they didn't say, well, what's in it for me? They just followed. Um, They didn't know what their life was going to be like as one of Jesus' disciples, but they saw something different in this man. They saw that he had the authority. He had the authority of God. They believed that he was the Messiah. And so they did give up everything. Gave up their source of income, gave up their home, their their families. They left it for Jesus' sake. And so Jesus promises they will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. So when he talks about those who are first, who will be last, he's saying those who have much in this life, if they are putting their trust in that, then in the life to come, they will have nothing. Whereas those who are last in this life, because they have given everything up, will be first. They will have everything in the life to come. But let's not mistakenly think that being a Christian is all about the life to come. Being a Christian is being full of joy in this life. Because we have a great hope. Because we have the love of God. We experience that in our day-to-day life. It may be a hard life. But the rewards, even in this life, will far outweigh the costs. As Hudson Taylor once said, he had never succeeded in making a sacrifice for God. Every time he gave up anything for God, he found so much blessing that he felt himself better off rather than worse off for having given up whatever it was. And I'm sure many of you can testify to that as well. 
Uh, we can testify to as a church, can't we? The more we've given up for Jesus, the more we have been blessed. So as we finish, let's just have a moment of quiet to, uh, to speak to God, to maybe confess what you still need to give up for him, um, to ask for his strength to do so, to be able to trust in him that he will give us all that we need. And then just in a, in a minute or two, the um, covenant prayer of John Wesley will appear on the screen. And I'll give you a chance to read it. And then if you're able to, to pray that, then we'll pray it together to finish before we sing again. But a moment of quiet, first of all, to, uh, to pray to God.